In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, uh, it's an exciting time because we are finishing our first full series as a church. We've been going through the book of 1 John. 1 John's written by the Apostle John, uh, also known as one of Jesus' closest buddies. He was in the inner circle with Jesus, so he knew him well. He lived longer than any of the other disciples. He wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So he is an important figure. His words carry weight. Of course, he's inspired by the Spirit to write these words. And so today we finish with the very last verse of 1st John. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1st John chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at the very last. It's in the very back of your Bible. There are not many pages between 1 John and your back cover. If you've got your phone and you need to Google it, nothing wrong with that. If you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame there. I use it all the time. So the question is, this week... What in the world is John doing ending his letter the way that he does? First, let me say this. I hate goodbyes. I hate goodbyes. It was a great mind of the 20th century that first told us that, Lloyd, Christmas. Like him, I hate goodbyes. I had to say goodbye to my house this week. We moved houses. It's the house where we started the church. It's the house where we started our family, and so it was... A sad move. We're excited about our new place, but it was sad to say goodbye. And I'm sad to say goodbye to 1 John because it's the first book of the Bible that we've gone through as a church. Uh, It has meant a lot to me as I've gotten to sit underneath John's teaching and learn from him. I hope that there's something of a sadness in your heart that we're leaving 1 John because it has been a joy. So, We're leaving, we're saying goodbye, but there's this thing about goodbyes, the thing about the end of conversations that I think sometimes we might forget. They're very important, in fact. Uh, One of the ways we see this is in what I call uh, the threshold phenomenon. What do I mean by the threshold phenomenon? Have you ever experienced this? Uh, You might invite somebody over for dinner, or you have them over to your house for a meeting, or you meet in their office. And almost like through the whole time together, nothing of significance is said, but as soon as you walk them to the door and you're standing at the door, you're about to say goodbye, they bring up the most important thing that they've been waiting to say. If you've never experienced this, you're maybe just missing the cue. It happens a lot on first dates. You walk them to the door, the whole time, the car ride back, whatever, you've been wanting to ask them the important question, can we have a second date? And you would wait and you wait until you get to the threshold of the door. And then you finally ask, almost as a last-ditch ever. So this happens all the time. I actually learned this from uh, one of my roommates who's in architecture. Uh, she has her master's in architecture. She used to live below us at our, at our now f- old place. And she told me that uh, she uh, did her thesis on designing uh, public spaces where there's lots of thresholds so that... good conversation can actually happen because she too recognized that the best conversations happen at the threshold. So she was designing spaces where there was lots of thresholds. I thought it was incredibly profound because of course what we're about as a church is starting multiplying conversations that matter. So 
The threshold phenomenon teaches us that endings are important. Sometimes the last thing that someone says is the most important, the most valuable. I also think that's true in a mother's remarks. When you were a young boy and you went off, or, or girl, and you went off to your first sleepover, it was always that last thing that mom said before you were running out the door. She would usually yell it after you, and she'd usually say something like this. Don't forget to brush your teeth. Mom, of all the things to say, but what is mom really saying? <laughs> Be safe. Don't do anything you're not supposed to do. Now, when you get your first car and you get your driver's license, as you're pulling out of the driveway, mom usually runs out, and the last thing she yells at you as you're running out is, don't forget to wear your seatbelt. Now she's more concerned about, be safe. It's dangerous. And then finally, when you go off to college, mom always says this, right, as she drops you off, she yells out the window, she rolls it down. You know, they used to have to, you used to have to roll it down when I went to college. You roll it down and you say, hey, don't forget to call. What is she saying? I'll be checking up on you and praying for you. And if you don't, I'll come visit you, so make sure you call. In all of these, she's saying in her final remarks, be safe. Probably for mothers, the most important thing they could say because they love their kids so much. Be safe. And they always wait till the last moment to proclaim. So it's no different when we study scripture. Sometimes we fizzle off to the end, but I think the last remarks can be very, very valuable and important. And I think uh, what they can do is, is shine a hermeneutical spotlight on the text in fact, they can illuminate for us maybe a central theme that the author, because he wants to make sure we got the point, he proclaims it as his last remark. I do this every week, right? It's almost like I can't help myself but get back up here and give a benediction and make sure you got the big idea, right? It's no different here with John. He wants to highlight the central concern. And while when we read it, you might think, this is a little bit out of place. I want to show you that it's actually in line with everything else he's been talking about. So, without further ado, let's read the very last verse of 1 John. Verse 21 says this. Like a big brother, like a father, to these congregations to whom he's writing, John says this. Little children. It's a term of endearment. Little children. Keep yourselves from idols. Well, that's weird. He hasn't actually talked about idols at all in his letter. So why does he bring it up at the end? It's confused scholars for years, but I actually think it fits right in line with everything that he's been teaching us. What has he been teaching us? Remember the three tests of faith. To know if you're truly in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to test yourself. And the first test is the test of belief. Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ, God in the flesh? Belief is important, what we believe about God, about Jesus, his son. The second test is the test of obedience. 
It's not enough just to believe. We, our, our belief must lead us into action, into obedience of God. That's the second test. And the third test is the test of love. To love one another. How can we say we know God? God is love if we do not love one another. That's the third test. And in each of these, John is writing against an idea about who God is or what knowing God would lead into. And so it makes perfect sense that at the end of his letter, he remarks, keep yourself from idols, which is to say, make sure you're worshiping the right God. And if you're doing all these things and you're worshiping the wrong God, then what's the point? Keep yourself from idols, he says. This is to say, keep yourself from worshiping idols. He's not saying, just keep idols out of your house. He's saying, keep yourself from worshiping idols. Which is to say, make sure you're worshiping the right God. Which is to say, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who came in the flesh in Jesus the Christ, who died and rose again. Which is to say, in general, worship well. Worship well. So how do we keep ourselves from worshiping the wrong gods? Well, there's two parts to the equation. We have to understand what is an idol, and we have to understand what is worship. So what is an idol? In your um, clipboards, you'll find... uh Uh-oh. Okay, you will not find, does anyone have a yellow piece of card in their clipboards? Absolutely not. Great. On your way out, pick up the quote that I'm about to read. I've been starting to print out the quotes that I use because uh, so many times when I was in church, I said, that's a great quote, I, and I think, oh, I'll just remember that quote. I never remember the quote. It usually takes about 32 minutes after I leave the service. I've forgotten the quote. I forgot who said it, and so we've started to print them. We'll put them on the back for the way out, uh, but for now, just listen very attentively. It's, it's quite a long quote, uh, but it's from our good friend Tim Keller, and he has a great book called Counterfeit Gods. If you want to buy a great book and read it, buy this book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this in describing what an idol is. To contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. The biblical book of Acts in the New Testament mentions vivid descriptions of the cultures of the ancient Greco-Roman world. Each city worshipped its favorite deities, built shrines around their images for worship. When Paul went to Athens, he saw that it was literally filled with images of these divinities. The Parthenon of Athena overshadowed everything, but other deities were represented in public space. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the god of fertility and wealth. But our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, its rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessing of the good life. 
and ward off disaster? What are the gods of beauty, power, money, achievement, but the same thing, the same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before statues of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige, end quote. Keller, no surprise, the title of his book, calls these counterfeit gods. A better term, perhaps, God substitutes. Anything we substitute, put in the place of God. I rather like to call them artificial gods, and this is why I like to call them that. Artificial gods. Why? Because they seem to provide the same stuff as the real thing. That is, until you find and taste the real thing. And then you realize that what you had before was artificial. It wasn't the real deal. And you're liberated from that false notion. So I like to call them artificial gods. That's how I'll refer to them today. All three are great terms. Counterfeit gods, God substitutes, Artificial gods, all describing, I think, what an idol is. And what do we do with our idols? What do we do with idols? They did it back in the day, and we do it today with our own idols. Here's what we do. We look at them, and we say in our heart of hearts, we say this. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there's many ways to describe that feeling in our heart of hearts. One way to describe it is worship. So what is worship? Well, worship of idols in the Old Testament, this is a big problem. Much of uh, the Bible, like that much of it, a huge theme is worshiping idols. And what we find in the most famous moral code of all, you've probably heard of it, the Ten Commandments, the very first command is this, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. This leads to the natural question, well, what are the other gods? Are they real gods? The answer comes immediately, immediately after the first commandment says this, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on earth beneath, or the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. What is an idol? It's anything that takes the place of God, artificial gods. And it includes anything and everything in the world, I believe, can become an idol. Now, Be careful to not hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying everything is an idol. I'm saying everything has the potential to become an idol. And so, John says, be careful. Be safe. Keep yourself from idols. Idolatry, again in the Old Testament, 
This idea of literally bowing down, kissing the hand of, making sacrifices to these other gods of other religions, other nations, or even ones that you've created yourself. But the Bible makes it clear that idolatry is not confined to just bowing down to other quote-unquote gods. It's as easily done internally in the soul, inside the heart, without ever being external or literal or explicit in the act of bowing down. We can bow down with our heart. We know this is true. So in essence, worship is designed by God to be done by human beings, but anytime we worship a created thing rather than the creator, we call that idolatry. I'm going to give you another long quote, and it's a good one from Tim Keller, okay? Like I said, get this book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this. After the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hung himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many, Europe, many of Europe's royal and leading families who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hung himself in the closet of his $500 per night suite in London. When one of the Bear Stearns executives learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, the company which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from his 29th, the 29th floor of his office building. A friend said about him, this Bear Stearns thing broke his spirit. It was grimly reminiscent of the suicide in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. In the 1830s, Keller goes on, Alexis de Tocqueville, a, f- a famous French political thinker and historian, recorded this famous observation about America. He noted, a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Americans believed that the prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness, but such a hope was illusory. Because, Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. This strange melancholy manifests itself in many ways, but always leads to the same despair of not finding what is sought. Keller writes, There's a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain in which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing, among others, so that if you experience a career reversal, you can find comfort, for instance, in your family to get through it. Despair, on the other hand, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning, there are no alternative sources to turn to. And he writes this, it breaks your spirit. What's the cause of this strange melancholy that 
permeates our society. Even during booming times of uh, frenetic activity, of which turns to outright despair when prosperity diminishes. De Tocqueville says it comes from, did you hear what he said? Incomplete joy in this world. Sorry. Taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. That's the definition of idolatry. Taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life around it. That's what we do when we worship artificial gods. Now, if you were with us when we started the series on John, and I'm going to ask you to turn there now uh, to the first chapter of 1 John, you might hear a little bit of an echo of what John says right at the beginning of his letter. And I thought it was so fascinating that this Frenchman in the 1800s looked at America and pointed out something that John writes about 2,000 years ago. Read the very beginning of the letter, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, says this, That which is from the beginning, and he's speaking about Jesus, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Why? Because indeed our fellowship is with the Father God and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. De Tocqueville writes, seeking something and making your life revolve around it, which is an incomplete joy of this world, ultimately leads to despair. The Apostle John said the same thing 2,000 years ago. And he said there's only one person, only one object of our affection and our worship that doesn't lead to despair, and his name is Jesus Christ. And John has been writing from the first chapter on, trying to plead with the people in his congregation Don't go off and start worshiping the wrong God. Worship the right God and worship Him well. And here are all the things that worship looks like. It looks like love for one another. It looks like obedience. It looks like knowing the truth and celebrating the truth. That our joy may be complete. Isn't that interesting? Some Frenchman comes and looks at America and says... That's a country full of abundance, but incomplete joy. And John says, the answer to incomplete joy is God in the flesh. That's Jesus Christ. So why does John tell us to keep ourselves from idols? Why doesn't he just say, worship God well? This is why I think he says it in kind of a weird roundabout way. He's telling us to worship the right God and to worship God well, but he says it. Keep yourself from idols. Here's why I think he says that. Because at times we think that we're worshiping God when in fact we're worshiping an artificial God. 
Because idols sneak up on us. We don't even know that they're idols. So we need to be careful and be very, very clear about who it is we worship. Here's the other thing about idols that makes it so, them so dangerous and why we have to show so much care in how and who we worship. Because an idol is rooted almost always in a good thing. Here's what I mean by that. I think lots of times when we hear the word idol, we associate it with a bad thing. But here's, 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 here's the deal. Idols are almost never rooted in bad things. They're always rooted in good things. Financial security is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Athletic prowess is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. A great family is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But it's not the greatest thing. It's not the greatest good. So we see an idol and we recognize that it's a good thing and so we try to make it an ultimate thing when it's just always meant to be a good thing. And so it can be so insidious the way the worship of false gods, the way the worship of idols seeps into our life because they're good things. They satisfy a real need, but they don't satisfy the deepest need. Anything can serve as an artificial god. But only one thing can serve as the real God. His name's Jesus. So, if you find yourself in this place where you're worshiping an idol, here's what's going to happen. It's going to ask more of you and more of you and more of you, and you're never going to be able to give it enough. Because idols are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. They're bloodthirsty. They're hard to appease. They still are. And here's the second thing that's going to happen to you. You're going to find yourself, because you can't appease this idol, because it's like you can never have enough money, you can never have a perfect family, you can never reach the very top. You're going because the promise is if you get there, you'll have complete joy. But the, the problem is, behind it all, even if you get there, there's no complete joy. But you'll keep fighting and you're pushing and here's what you're going to do. Eventually, because you can't live without getting that thing that you think is going to fulfill you, you're going you're to push and you're going to start breaking rules. Rules that you once honored. You're going to start harming people, people that you once loved. You're going to start harming yourself and you're going to stop loving yourself in order to get that thing that that idol, that counterfeit God, that artificial God has promised you. Because idols become spiritual addictions and they can lead to terrible evil. Have you ever asked the question, why would a baseball player like Alex Rodriguez or Barry Bonds take steroids? They had already reached the pinnacle of their sport. They had already made more money than they would ever know what to do with. They had already secured for themselves a place in the Hall of Fame. Why in the world would they risk it all by taking an illegal substance? It's because they were worshiping an artificial god. Just and in their case, just greatness wasn't enough. 
They had to be the greatest of the great. They had to be in the hall of fame of the hall of fame because it never quite satisfied. Do you ever understand why people do that? You say, well, if I ever made that much money, I'd just retire and I'd just spend it. Call me when you get there. Call me when you have enough money if that's your God. You'll never get there. Now, athletic prowess is not a bad thing in itself, but when it becomes your God, it's a terrible bedmate. But it does, doesn't happen just to the richest or the most successful. It happens to all of us. And then we find ourselves in this place where we're not worshiping the true God, we're worshiping an artificial God, and we become something of a slave to that God. And then we try to wrap it in pretty language. We say, if I just had a little bit more money to assure my children's financial future, then I'll stop working so hard. If I just get that promotion until I get to a safe place in my organization, then I'll stop stressing so much. Then I'll stop traveling so much. Then I'll stop working on the weekends. If I can just date around, sleep around a little bit more, then I'll make sure I find my soulmate. Then, then, then I'll be sure I'll be able to love him or her the way that somebody should love someone. Just let me kind of test the waters a little bit more. The list could go on and on and on. But John begs us, open your eyes, see what it is that you worship. Ask yourself the hard question, am I worshiping the one true God or am I worshiping something else? And ultimately, throughout 1 John, he's always asked these questions of congruence. And he's always said this, there are things that are incongruent with each other. Remember, he says life is incongruent or incompatible with death. Light is incompatible with darkness. Love is incompatible with indifference or hatred. Truth is incompatible with error. And then he gets to here. And he says, finally, and I believe it's something of a summary statement which all of those fit under, he says, the worship of anything else is incompatible with the worship of the one true God. You can't have the smorgasbord. You've got to decide. Ribs or everything else. You can't work. Somebody. Oh, that was my kid, I think. <laughs> Thanks for laughing at my joke, kid. Yeah. I love my kid. Okay. It's incompatible. It's incompatible. So John says, keep yourself from idols, which is to say, worship well. Worship well. And as I was preparing, I could not help but think about uh, the analogy of marriage that I think fits perfectly into this understanding of how do we worship well. If you are married, if you long to be married, if you ever were married, if you're about to get married, Rose and Bryce, listen close. Gracie and Ben, listen close. Marriage is a lot like worship. Now, when you get married, you are agreeing to do something. In fact, you're agreeing to do a lot of things, clean the dishes, 
that would be just one. I'm working on it. But all the little things that you're agreeing to are actually under the umbrella of one big thing. Now, listen to wedding vows. These are classic wedding vows that you might hear. It says, I, David, take thee, Allie, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health and love, and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. And therefore, I pledge thee my faith, which is to say, myself to you. Now, the basic thread that runs through all of those things that we promise, in, in richness and uh, in rich, for richer, for poor, for sickness and in health, those will have individual manifestations that may or may not come into your marriage. But ultimately, what you're saying when you take the vow, and you're taking the vow before God, you're saying this, I promise to be faithful. No matter what life throws, I promise to be faithful. Which is to say, I promise to worship as my wife or my husband, no one else but you. Which is to say, I promise not to commit adultery. Every religious, I looked it up, every religious wedding vows, some use it, some don't, but if they do use it, they all have this element of faithfulness. Faithfulness, to be faithful, means to not love somebody else in the way that you love me. That doesn't mean you don't love anybody else. It doesn't mean you don't do anything else. It doesn't mean that you're not on a softball team. It doesn't mean that you don't get together and have drinks with the girls. But what it means is you don't love anybody else in the way that you love your spouse. That's what faithfulness means. And when I married Allie, I made a covenant with her not to love anybody else in the way that I love her. Otherwise, I'm committing adultery. And what's interesting, if you read the Bible, one of the key analogies that it uses to talk about idolatry is the concept of adultery. If you're taking notes, you can write it down and look it up for yourself. I'm not going to read it. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 4. Jeremiah 2, 4. Ezekiel 16, 1 to 63. Hosea 13, 4. Isaiah 54, 5 to 8, and 62, 5. Those are just some of the examples where idolatry is used specifically to talk about the worship of idols. And why does God use this analogy? Because just like when you get married, just like when I asked Allie to marry me, what I'm asking her is to be faithful to me. I want her to love me in a way that she loves no one else. God wants us to be faithful to him in our worship. He wants us to love him in a way that we love no other God. God wants us to worship him alone. God wants us to commit to him only. Just like any normal wife or husband, his motivation is not selfish. His motivation is not neediness. His motivation is love. Why? Because he knows that monogamous devotion to him is the very best thing for us. So he desires our autonomous devotion, not because he's needy, but because he's loving. 
because he desires, we talked about it last week, our fullest flourishing, our greatest good. And he knows that he's designed us to be worshipers. Let me say it again. He has designed us to be worshipers. And he knows that we will worship something. And he says, please, function according to your design. You were designed to worship me. And so he begs us to do it. He begs us to keep ourselves from other artificial gods and to worship the one true God. So this ending to John's letter, it's not out of place. In fact, it's quite, it's quite amazing how it encapsulates all that he said. We've got to know who the true Christ is. We've got to worship him, not just in word, but in deed. We've got to love one another as he's loved us. We've got to be light in dark places. We've got to speak truth where there's error. And we've got to worship him alone. We've got to get covenantally united to Christ, which is to say, and, and, and if, you, if you want to get baptized, come talk to me, because we'll talk about this. To be baptized is like a wedding ceremony where you're publicly in front of the congregation saying, I am uniting myself and something of a marriage to the one true God of the universe through his son Jesus Christ. Through the death and resurrection, which is to say the dunking and the raising, I'm uniting myself. I'm committing to him and him alone. That's a scary proposition, friends. It's scary. I didn't get married till I was 30 because I was scared to make that kind of commitment. Why do you think so many people are waiting longer and longer to get married? Because it's scary to unite yourself to one person. To unite yourself to one God. It's a scary proposition. So, what do you do in the face of fear? You always have a choice. Here's the four choices you have. We have a scary proposition. God says, worship me alone. Here's what we can do. We can close our eyes, cross our fingers, and hope that we pick the right man or woman to marry, the right God to worship. That's one option. It's called, we call that, let's call that blind faith. I'm just going to trust. <clears throat> option two, we can choose to remain in a non-committal relationship. We can say, you know what? It's too much, too, too much risk here. Let's just remain sort of cohabitating. There's no need to commit here. Now we'll have this ultimate freedom. We can come and go as we choose. And you know what? We do the same thing with our gods. As, as long as it's working out good, we'll come to church and we'll wave the Jesus flag. But I don't want to commit to anything here because what if things go a little bit wrong, a little bit south, the reputation of the church goes down the tubes? I don't want to be associated with them. Eh, let's just non-committal. That's option two. Option three, we can get married to our husband and wife, to our God, and then just continue to worship and love other men and women. We say, yeah, I'll commit mainly to this camp, but I haven't closed these doors. I come and go as I please. I go, I visit other women or other men or other gods. So I get married, but I keep my options open. Now here's the fourth option. And if you can't tell, this is my favorite option. 
We can open our eyes. We can pursue the truth. And how do we pursue the truth? Through honest, diligent consideration of who we're going to marry, of what God we're going to serve. We ask hard questions. We seek the counsel of trusted men and women who have shown that they have something real and true about them in word and deed. We can ask them for their advice. And here's what happens when we do that, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's committing to God. We take the so-called leap of faith, which sometimes, I think wrongly so, gets uh, sort of uh, labeled heroic. We take the leap of faith and we work and we mold and we consider and we dwindle it down until that leap becomes a step of faith. It still requires faith, but it's no longer a blind leap. It's a step of faith. That's why we talk so much about considering the truth of Jesus Christ, considering the gospel, considering who is this God who claims to love us to be light and life and truth. We must consider it to take a leap and turn it into a step. And we, do the same, we should do, be doing the same thing with who we're going to marry as what God we're going to serve. So, once we make the vow to follow and worship God alone, which is to say worship well, how do we live up to those vows? How do we actually do this well? Remember I said we're created by God to worship. So we have no option just to stop worshiping other things. We are going to worship something. You can't just turn that part of you off. It's just who you are. And so, the best way to make sure you live up to your vow to God to worship Him alone, if that's the vow you choose to take, it's not simply by stopping worshiping artificial gods less. The only way to actually live up to your vows is to crank up your worship of the one true God. You've got to get rid of that worship energy somehow. It's not just going to go away. So the only way to keep your vows is to crank up your worship of the one true God. And friends, this is the way it works in marriage too. You, can't, you cannot expect, well, I'm not loving my wife very well, and, I'm, and I'll be fine. Nothing else will tempt me out here. The only way to make sure you're not drawn out into the, the love of other men or women in your life is by loving your wife so well that you've got no love left to give anybody else because you have spent it on her. You've given her everything you have. You've sacrificed for her. And I don't do this well. I'm not saying this because I've figured it out. But I know that when I'm loving Allie very well, keeping myself from others, no problem. It's the same way with God. If we really want to take seriously John's call to keep ourselves from idols, the best way to do that is to run and worship and spend our time and our energy worshiping the one true God, his son, Jesus Christ. That's the best way to keep your vows. That doesn't mean that you've got to go to church every day. It doesn't mean that all you listen to is worship music on the radio. It doesn't mean that you quit your job so you can just read the Bible all day. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying that in everything that you do, you're viewing it through a lens of worship. The way you work in your job is through the lens of worshiping God. I'm working not for myself or for money or even for my family. I'm working because God has created me to work and I want to work. When I come to church, yeah, I worship and I sing and I give myself wholeheartedly. I don't care about other people around me. And if I can't sing and if I don't have, if I'm off key, I don't care about that because I'm worshiping God. But then when I go out into the work week and I'm, Maybe I'm at Sunday morning volleyball. I mean, I'm going to worship God through the spiking of the ball at Rose Livermore. <laughs> Word. That happened. We worship him in everything. Okay. Worship well, my friends. That's the whole point. Keeping yourself from idols is the same as saying worship well. So the way forward, out of despair is to discern the idols of our heart and the artificial gods of our culture. We've got to see it first before we can keep ourselves from it. So we've got to have a critical eye and ask honest questions and be honest with ourselves. But that's not enough just to see it and to realize it because you'll always feed that artificial god until you taste the real thing. So if you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never met him, if you've never experienced what it's like to worship him, we say this all the time at, at Sedaris, the honest consideration of Jesus Christ, is he who he says he is, the honest consideration of that truth is the first step of worship. So if, if you're still considering, I just want to say thank you, you're worshiping tonight. I truly believe that you're worshiping tonight if you're honestly considering, is Jesus who he is? And once you taste the real thing, you'll never be able to go back. Money will never be the same to you as it once was. Because you've tasted something true and good and real. So we free ourselves from the destructive influences of artificial gods by turning to the one true God, the living God, revealed both on Mount Sinai and on the cross. This is the Lord who, if you find him, can fulfill you. And if you fail him, and you will, he can truly forgive you. So from the beginning to the end, in 1 John, oh, I hate to say goodbye, John. He'll say this, little children, guard your hearts from worshiping artificial gods and worship well with faithful devotion, the true and proper object of your affections, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, come in the flesh. And I promise you, John says, you will have true fellowship with God and your joy will be complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word through the Apostle John, that you've inspired the writing of this text, that we have the great privilege to study it. God, we pray, first, in recognition that you are the true God and that your son, Jesus Christ, was sent into the world on a rescue mission for us, that he was fully God and fully man. He was God the Son. 
and he came in the flesh. And he was love incarnate and life incarnate. Light and truth incarnate. God, we just pray, please help us to see. Help us to discern in our own individual lives those things that are idols, those things that are artificial gods that we're looking for ultimate fulfillment and meaning from but can never deliver. Help us to see what they are. Help us to see our culture, what our culture has built up as gods, what our culture worships. Help us to be people who see that it's, that it's not capable of giving us complete joy. And then, Lord, as we've seen it, help us put people in our lives. Give us true, real, deep friendships so that we can make steps towards worshiping you rather than that. That we can worship you rather than those gods. That's our prayer, Lord. We pray this with great sincerity because day in and day out, this is a struggle. And we're honest about that. Help us to find freedom in Christ, which is to say freedom to live in unity with the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Each and every week, friends, yeah, give me some of that background.